whether it's Enron or or uh, Elizabeth Holmes or FTX, you're telling me there's nobody in the room that has the moral courage to say, excuse me, wait a second. You know, so I read today somebody lost $2 million, their life savings on FTX. Is there nobody in the room who's going to stand up and say, stop, this is wrong? All right, Rich, thanks for coming on today. Uh, we worked together, I don't know how many years ago, when uh, my company, Curatech, was a vendor at Audience Partners. Uh, I think that was back in like 2016 or 2015. Uh, so since then, I've seen you, you're part of multiple other companies. You've sold Audience Partners to Altice. I just checked, they have like a $1.88 billion market cap, down 10x from, from last year since... Uh, kind of stock highs uh, in 2021. And uh, you've got a bunch of other companies as well that you've got irons in the fire with. I'd love to just kind of dive into some of that. Uh, any particular place you want to start? No, you know, I'm, I'm in a 12-step program to stop starting companies. And uh, <laughs> I'm not doing very well uh, in my recovery. So uh, we can uh, start where you like. Cool. Yeah, let's let's do audience partners. I think that's that's where our uh, interaction started. And uh, so uh, let's start there. If you uh, can kind of give me just like what was the original inspiration for it? Uh, you know, I think you and Jeff started it together, right? Yeah, my partner, Jeff Ditas, Um We started it as as campaign grid. And um, in roughly 2007, I was asked to run for Congress. And uh, I considered it briefly what the you know RNC NRCC wanted me to do was write a five million dollar check for my own campaign, but because of uh, uh, redistricting and gerrymandering, uh, I was outgunned two to one uh, Democrat uh, registered voters to Republican registered voters. So they really wanted me to be a sacrificial lamb, mm. and uh, I was flattered to be asked, but I thought there might be a better use of those funds. And uh, I went to the RNC and said, I'd like to put together um, an advertising network, a political ad network uh, to target voters by registration. So, you know, one ad gets shown to a Republican, a different ad gets shown to a Democrat. Um, and the other thing at the time is that the you could buy advertising based on zip codes or states, um, but you couldn't buy it by congressional district. And so what Jeff and I did was we mapped the country into congressional districts and then uh, entered into an agreement with the RNC, the Republican National Committee, to use their voter file and match it to online uh, profiles from folks like Amazon and others dropping cookies to indicate if you were a right or, or a left-leaning uh, voter. Now, there's a rather famous company um, uh, out of Britain, um, uh, 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 excuse me, um, it's it's escaping me. We have to come back to it. But they got in trouble for doing what we did. Uh, Cambridge Analytica was the oh, name. Oh yeah, and and they got in trouble for two reasons. Well, they got I, in trouble for the Facebook thing, right? Because they were doing uh, all the quizzes or whatever, and then exporting all the data out of the Open Graph on Facebook. Yeah. So. Uh, so they were basically stealing that data using an app 
And they also uh, had taken money from the Russians, is my recollection. Mm. So, uh, you know, we did neither of those things. We, um, you know, were homegrown and certainly didn't take any Russian money. And uh, (laughs) rather than steal the information from Facebook, we just paid Facebook to reach those audiences. So it was the first time that anybody was able to target voters that way. And we secured a patent for targeting voters on desktop, mobile devices, and later on, on, uh, on television. So oh, those, wow. those patents were sold to Altice uh, when we sold the company. Um, and then Campaign Grid, people noticed what we had done by taking these offline databases, um, uh, specifically voter databases, and matching them online. So we expanded into other verticals like healthcare, uh, et cetera. We were part of the Obamacare rollout um, by identifying likely uh, customers who, who were uninsured. Um, so it was quite a ride. I think we did that for from seven to 15. So it was, it was an eight year run. Wow, that's awesome. So a couple of things you touched on. Uh, Obviously, the landscape's changed and cookies are kind of out the door now. Uh, So curious how uh, how you've seen the ad space evolving there. But then uh, another point you mentioned was about, uh, you know, how you guys were the first on the scene to do the, uh, you know, kind of by voter registration districts or, uh, you know, by uh, you know, registered party, uh, you know, where, where people are registered, you were the first to be able to serve users content ads specifically based on those two criteria has Google or Facebook or any of the other major ad platforms or ad networks since added that functionality, or were you guys still one of the, you know, I guess Altice now one of the only doing it. No, I think the entire digital ad landscape migrated into, uh, using, either our technology or similar technologies. And, you know, I have very mixed emotions over it because on the one hand, it was uh, very successful. Uh, It was a a financial win for myself, Jeff, and and all the employees. On the other hand, I do think it contributes to the polarization Mm. that we see um, in our politics. You know, there's a a book out called The Filter Bubble. And, um, you know, what's happened is people are being only exposed to the information that uh, coincides with their beliefs. Um, And so this filter bubble creates um, uh, a vacuum. And, you know, the the people who are watching Fox News never get the perspective of a MSNBC viewer and vice versa. So um, I think that's really contributed to the polarization in the political landscape. And for that, I feel I feel badly. I mean, I've checked out before we yeah, I got reconnected there. I checked out like some of your tweets and, you know, LinkedIn posts. And, you know, I think you're, you're a pretty, you know, like middle of the road kind of guy, like you think for yourself and you are open to both perspectives and forming your own opinion. And I guess a lot of people, I don't want to generalize, but I think, you know, some people don't do that, like not any particular group of people, but just some individuals, regardless of, you know, who they are, where they're from, whatever, just don't form form their own opinions and kind of are more susceptible than others to, media and to kind of falling into one of these algorithmic, uh, you know, wormholes. Uh, but I think Facebook is probably the worst of all of them for, uh, for polarizing people, you know, creating that polarization of, of masses. Would you agree with that? Um, you know, I, I might agree with it. I think I have more 
exposure to Facebook um, and their algorithms than some of the other social media platforms. Um, I think, you know, I'd like to think that the vast majority of Americans are patriotic, uh, you know, of moderate beliefs. But the reality is in in the world, the, the media, the way it exists right now, um, it really lends itself to, to the extremists on, on both ends. And I can tell you, for example, having you know worked on literally thousands of campaigns, um, that it's almost impossible for a middle of the road candidate to raise money online, but the bomb throwers on the left and the right uh, mm. can be very successful raising money online. So I, I think there's a distorted view uh, caused by the filter bubble that um, the only people are online are extremists. It's not the case. It's just that the the silent majority, as they used to call it during the Nixon administration, really isn't heard and is not engaged in in bomb throwing. But I, I may be romanticizing this, but I think that's the vast majority of Americans. And I yeah, I mean, I I'd see that this, the silent majority. I see that as being a thing because I don't really know anyone who's. I mean, I have a few people I know that you know family members or whatever that are extreme on one one end or the other, but. If you look at the people I know in my life, the people, you know, I work with or, you know, friends and friends of friends and that sort of thing, I don't really know anybody that's super extreme. And most people are pretty reasonable somewhere in that kind of like silent majority. But that, you know, the 10% on both ends of the spectrum are the ones that everyone hears because they're the loudest. Yeah. And there's, um, you know, there's no shared experience anymore. It's not like uh, 40 or 50 years ago when Walter Cronkite was on the news at six o'clock and, you know, with three channels to choose from, um, you know, with the explosion of media options and choices and editorial decisions, um, you might experience this with your own company. How many times do you get to the office and stand around the water cooler and everybody's talking about one show that was on last night? It's, <laughs> it's really not with streaming and everything else. It's not that. It's not got common anymore. So I think the world, I, I don't know if the polarization of our politics created the media environment or vice versa, but um, they are uh, codependent. Yeah, interesting. Uh, and it's really interesting because uh, I know you were uh, in the, you know, as you said, you, you were in that uh, political ad space world. So it's really interesting to hear your perspective on that. Uh, what do you, so I've been seeing some really interesting ad platforms coming out lately I, I don't know specifically uh i can't name names off the top of my head uh or there was that one roll-up uh that went public they were the, they're now the largest uh what um magnite i think was was uh are you familiar with magnite just you know vaguely um i think that the um you know my perspective of the evolution of the ad tech world um uh, from the time that we started in 2007, you know, there was a lot of innovation. There was a lot of uh, new technology that was required. And I think that by and large, the ad tech space has been commoditized now. Yeah. Um, you know, there, the, the, the spread between like the bid and the ask in uh, programmatic ads uh, advertising is still far too large. You know, when you think about the trading of an ad unit, it really shouldn't be that much more expensive than trading a unit of stock. Um, so if you can sell a, a share of General Motors or IBM for a dollar, 
it shouldn't cost you 30, 40% to trade ad impressions, but those uh, kinds of gross margins uh, are eaten up by all of the middlemen, you know, the, the people that are matching cookies to IDs. And by the way, you said cookies were going away. Uh, it's like that joke, you know, the uh, rumors of my death have been exaggerated. Uh, Google keeps pushing out the deadline for mm. sunset cookies. And in the absence of cookies, there are other identity graphs. One of them that, you know, we helped invent was IP targeting. So uh, you know, we could take the individual IP uh, address and use that to profile folks. Um, but in terms of the ad tech landscape, uh, it's largely been commoditized. Um, and I think is ripe for more innovation. I think the big, uh, you know, the, the big things that have that have happened since I sold to Altice, certainly the emergence of TikTok uh, is is fascinating. Um, and um, you know, the other uh, trend that escaped me uh, is the influencer network. I mean, there's literally children making millions of dollars and um, uh, opening up toys. And there are influencers in every category. And uh, it's just a fascinating uh, explosion of, of, of new media that was nowhere to be found uh, in 2000, 2007. Um, I am not familiar with the infrastructure that supports those uh, influencers, but it's really fascinating to me. Yeah, TikTok's really interesting. We're actually uh, so the way that you know one of the things we do uh, with the Cash Flow podcast is you know obviously we have the full episode content that gets distributed out to all of the podcast uh, platforms, and then we put it on YouTube as well with the video content. Then we have segments and clips. So the segments are like you know individual five to fifteen minute sections of one topic, like one, you know, focused on one topic, not, you know, multiple things like the episode. Yeah. Uh, and then we pull the clips that are like 30 seconds or, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40 second clips. And we haven't moved into TikTok yet. I want to master the YouTube shorts strategy first so yeah. we can drive traffic to the YouTube episodes. But uh, TikTok is like, you know, it's like a rocket. Once you figure that out, uh, you know, you put, you figure out how to put the jet fuel in that thing is a, uh, a pretty wild uh, engine. And uh, it's amazing too. you know, just people. It's such a sticky app, you can just sit there and like flip through videos and find yourself stuck on the platform for like an hour. And it's like, literally taking social media crack to the next level. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. The mouse that keeps hitting the lever, you know, give me yeah. more. more. Um, I heard it's uh, someone said recently, it's like the smartest minds of our generation are being employed by like these big tech companies to make sure you spend an extra two minutes uh, per day on the on their platform. Well, you know, it's very interesting that you say that because uh, earlier we were talking about uh, the programmatic ad space and the ad space in general. And, you know, it's still largely void of any real regulation. So um, in, in many respects, you could have, you're, you're seeing quants, for example, who uh, would otherwise go to Wall Street and apply their skills to trading stocks. And instead they move into social media or ad tech where you know, it's the wild, wild west. Um, 
there are no rules. I, you know, years ago, one of my patented plays was I would buy buy out all of the uh, available inventory, say on Fox News the day before election day. And, you know, I would do that nine months in advance because politicians don't have any money until usually around Labor Day. Fox News and the other publishers were would love to get the insertion order. So, you know, I would buy it for next to nothing. And then I would sit on it for six months at no cost whatsoever. Um, and it would go from maybe $3 per thousand to $30 per thousand as it got closer to election day, giving me this great arbitrage. And I still didn't even have to pay Fox News or the publishers for 30 days after, until 30 days after the ad impressions ran. Wow. So basically a seven month option for free. Hmm. If you did that on Wall Street, if you've got a seven month option with no financial commitment, uh, on IBM or Microsoft, you'd go to jail. Um, it's not permitted. <laughs> why do they? Uh, why does Fox News do that? I mean, don't they see that? Don't they understand that cycle, the buying cycle, and just wait to to sell it for more? Or why would they do that? You know, you would think that would be the case, but um, you know, very often these companies have changes in sales management. And, you know, every sales guy is trying to make his quota for the quarter. Yeah, yeah, I get so, it. You know, so if you put your insertion order in at the end of the first quarter, even though it's a third or fourth quarter buy, they're going to take it. Um, it helps I think that's make- the failings of like big corporate too. It's like everything's quarter by quarter and there's no long-term vision. Like you can't see the hor- you can't see out on the horizon. You're just trying to make your quota that quarter. So, you know, it's a great thing to exploit. Um, and you know, I, I shudder to think what a hedge fund guy would do. Uh, <laughs> I'm just a humble ed tech guy. Well, if, if you do the hedge fund, you can lever it up like 30 times or something somehow. Yeah. <laughs> or, or call SBF and, and do it all with. <laughs> I saw your, uh, your LinkedIn post with, um, what's her name? Uh, Theranos, Elizabeth Holmes and, uh, Sam Bankman freed, uh, like on the cover of Forbes and, you know, <laughs> You didn't even write anything. You just posted the images. <laughs> yeah, you know it, it. It's a fascinating. Um, it's fascinating for me to watch this because uh, the entrepreneurial community puts these folks on a pedestal. Uh, whether it's entrepreneurs or VCs, what have you, or certainly the uh, the business media. Elizabeth Holmes, you know, front page of Forbes and and SBF front page of Forbes, only to find out you know, that they're, they're complete and absolute frauds. And along the way, I think what's happened is it, it um, infects younger entrepreneurs who are out there, um, you know, playing the fake it till you make it game um, because that's who their quote unquote heroes see. They're not as the, the entrepreneurs that are coming up, maybe even those watching this podcast, um, they're not presented with the lunch bucket guy who's really working his butt off. Frankly, somebody like you, I'm not trying to blow smoke, but you've been at it for a a whole lot of years now. You're up to a hundred or more employees all around the world. Frankly, you should be celebrated, not the guy or the gal who closed the $10 million round and still has no revenue. And, you know, I would really like to see the pendulum swing back to, um, 
real reality, not not Kardashian entrepreneurs. And certainly, you know, they've been very financially successful. But what I mean is is the fake entrepreneur nonsense. Um, well, the uh, pie in the sky venture market seems to be a little bit uh, on hold right now. Uh, you know, companies that were raising at like, you know, ridiculous like. 20x future projected revenue, you know, top line future projected revenue. They're they're not getting that anymore. Yeah, but you know what? In my entrepreneurial career, and you know, arguably, I was I'm a, I'm a beneficiary. It was very lucky to be in the first dot com with US Interactive. This is the third cycle I've seen of this. Um, you know, I, I've seen extraordinary valuations in private equity and venture capital. Certainly in the dot-com boom up until uh, 1999, and really that collapsed in with MicroStrategy in January or February of 2000. And then it happened again in 2007, uh, and we had uh, a downturn that corrected valuations in 2008, and now it's unraveling again. So it's it seems it's on like an eight, 10-year cycle um, where the balloon gets blown up and then it it gets popped. So, um, micro strategy is interesting. Uh, what's, what's that guy, uh, the CEO, he's like the Bitcoin guy now. Yeah. Yeah. He's a, he's a crypto Bitcoin guy. Michael's yeah. Michael Saylor. Yeah. Michael Saylor. Um, he's a believer, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a crypto investor and I don't necessarily believe it. It might just be because I'm a boomer, uh, (laughs) like to remind me that, uh, and he doesn't mean it as an affectionate term. Um, so the, my, Michael Saylor though, uh, micro strategies, was that, I, I, I wasn't on the scene, you know, <laughs> I'm closer probably to your son's age than, than your age, but, uh, the, um, uh, was, was micro strategies kind of like what kicked off that collapse in the dot-com yeah, era? It, yeah. In 2000, that was the canary in the coal mine. Um, and it unraveled really quickly, uh, after, you know, they had this blown out missed earnings. Wow. Uh, uh now. Interestingly enough, and, and this might just be coincidence, but I've started all my successful internet businesses in recessions. Um, I don't think it's coincidence. Uh, I, it's like, you know, the concept of having wines minted in a certain, you know, vintages of wine in a certain year, like the conditions were great, like the weather and the sun, you know, the clouds were right and the grapes, yeah. you know, whatever. Uh, you know, during recessions, you've got access to the cheapest talent. And it's the hardest to raise money and it's the hardest to acquire customers. So you better have like a good business model. And if you do, then you've got the best talent, access to the best and cheapest talent. So when you come out of that two, three years later and your business is solid, you just take off while everyone else is trying to catch up. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, you know, uh, I I think the first couple of businesses that I started, it might've been by accident. I can tell you quite specifically that starting campaign grid slash audience partners in 2007, I distinctly made the decision to go into the political realm, A, because I was asked to run and there was no um, incumbent that was being smart about political advertising. Uh, But B, I said, you know, if the clouds are gathering economically, I want to be a Beltway bandit because in good times and bad times, uh, Washington, D.C. knows how to spend. Um, so I can say that I definitively did it uh, in 2007, 2008 because of economic conditions. Yeah, that's smart. Um, so you mentioned when we were uh, before we hit record, you mentioned you're getting the band back together on uh, audience partners. 
Yeah, I've, you know, I've had a, a few people reach out to me and um, I was very fortunate that Linda Montemayor, uh, she was uh, general counsel. And um, uh, after a successful run at Altice, uh, you know, she was looking for something uh, more entrepreneurial. Um, you know, one of the unfortunate truths is that after we sold to Altice, um, you know, they went public. Uh, they were not a public entity uh, when, when, we, when we sold to them. Uh, after we sold to them, they went public at about $30. And I think today the stock was trading at about $4, if I'm not mistaken. So, um, and, and that, that is in part because of economic conditions. It's in part because of uh, uh, some headwinds facing the cable industry. Um, but nonetheless, it has the consequence of, you know, anybody in a company with incentive stock grants in the 20s and 30s, you know, when it hits four or five, or, you know, out of the money, those golden handcuffs that were intended to be retention devices uh, certainly aren't that strong anymore. So, um, you know, a number of people that went to Altice have, have since left and they asked to, you know, come back to work for me. And I said, fine, but I, we have to respect any non-competes. So my non-compete uh, ended a couple of years ago. Um, but, you know, every individual who wants to make a decision to do that, um, you know, we have to review their paperwork. They have to uh, review their paperwork. And um, that's not just from a, a legal standpoint. It's also from an ethical standpoint. Um, you know, I try to treat everybody the way I'd want to be treated. And, um, you know, if, if I have an employee who has a non-compete, I would expect them to respect that. So I have to respect that in others. Absolutely. And I think, you know, since it's a, a little bit of a free form conversation we're having here, you know, it, it walks me into um, the importance of culture and, and ethics. Um, you know, I, I think I have a really strong track record of doing the right thing. And it's, it's something that has served me quite well. And once again, you know, you see the Elizabeth Holmes of the world and you see the SBFs of the world and um, the get rich quick crew. You know, I've been at this 30 years. Um, you know, I've been very, very fortunate. Um, and I don't know if my story is, is, is exciting as Elizabeth Holmes, but um, it's genuine and it's authentic. And, you know, I've made a lot of people a lot of money, including investors and my employees. And I take a great amount of pride in the fact that it has been done by the book, so to speak. Um, well, you, you might not be, uh, especially now more than ever, you might not be on the cover of, uh, you know, all the uh, news websites, but I'd rather uh, take your business advice any day <laughs> than Elizabeth Holmes. <laughs> well, yeah, that, you know, that's kind of you. And, and uh, I've had, I, I will confess that in my younger days, when I was first starting out, um, uh, I cranked the, the, the promotional machine uh, about as hard as I could. I got a whole basement full of clippings from Fast Company and Inc. magazine. Oh, nice. But I never, I, I never drank my own Kool-Aid, for lack of a better term. And, um, you know, for anybody out there who's, I, I'd like today's 
podcast to bring value to your listeners. Um, and I, I would recommend among other books, there's a, what my friends call an airport business book. It's called the five dysfunctions of a team. Mm. By, yeah, Patrick, by Patrick Lee and Coney. And um, I've really become uh, a devotee of that book. Um, and I'm also, you know, I sponsored or uh, underwrote a scholarship in my father's name at uh, James Madison University, where I graduated from, uh, about ethics in business. Um, and this was back when Enron was crashing. Uh, that's when I uh, endowed the scholarship. Um, and I just think it's an important subject uh, for entrepreneurs to keep in mind. And it's not talked about very much. You know, I just had, um, do you know Mike Krupit? Yes, another name. Yeah, he was the CEO. He started out like CTO and to COO, then CEO of CD Now. And, yeah, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He had a bunch of other companies. So he he's on my advisory team at Curotech. And I also just did an episode with him uh as well. Uh, it's not it's not aired yet. It'll be aired uh right before the one with you. Uh or no, it'll be aired in two episodes and then you'll be three. But uh anyway, he talked about the same thing, the importance of uh company values and on culture, but specifically not just stating values like, you know, integrity, you know, we do the right thing or whatever. It's he said, put the behavior underneath of that. He said, uh, you know, so if your value is integrity, then you could say something like, we won't ever give anybody any deal that we wouldn't take ourselves. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I cannot um, encourage your uh, uh, audience to, uh, I, I can't encourage them enough to, to follow this path. Um, and I have been richly rewarded by by doing the right thing. So I took one of the first website development companies public in 1999. It was called US Interactive and we got a billion two market cap. It wow. was a it was a phenomenal home run. And there were some uh late in the game there were some shady things going on and I uh I called them to the attention of the board where they said don't be such an altar boy blah 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 and um you know, I can tell you, uh, Brian, uh, I to this day don't know if I was fired or if I quit, but it's probably closer to being fired because- Is the company about, still around or no? No, about six months after I left, and, and you know, this is part of the story, right? Um, the company collapsed and, uh, and many of those people who called me an altar boy uh, found themselves on the receiving end of lawsuits for breach of fiduciary obligation. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the stock went from a hundred dollars a share in January to, you know, uh, 11 bucks uh, wow. by August. You said it was a multi-billion dollar market cap as well. Yeah. A billion, a billion two at its peak to, wow. you know, under a hundred million dollars. They, uh, my, my point is, I quit or got fired. Uh, I I was offered the the office with the window, uh, if I just shut up and collected the paycheck. And I'm like, no, nah, I'm not going to do that because I don't, I don't agree with what's going on here. By the way, my father was also dying of cancer, and so there was a push pull. But I ended up leaving, and because I made that decision, I wasn't bound to uh, hold the stock or disclose my holdings or disclose any of my activities. Um, uh, as were the other officers. 
And I ended up getting out and making a lot of money before the the thing imploded. Um, that's karma right there. That's karma. And people think that I'm this genius market timer. And no, you know what? I, I, I just did the right thing. And I went and took care of my dad. Well, you also had values around the situation and you stood by your values. So, you know, yeah. if you, you didn't know the market was going to collapse. You maybe thought you were losing money and leaving money on the table by selling, but you did it because it was what was right to do for you, at least. Yeah. And it's an example of, of when you do the right thing, it pays off. And there's yeah. lots of, there's lots of lessons out there that when you don't do the right thing, you can scam your way. So uh, I don't want to be on my soapbox because I'll, make a mistake next week and uh you know, oh that was the guy talking about ethics and doing it right but um it's really important and i i pride myself on it and i really encourage you and all of your viewers to to take a, have a deep respect for it yeah good advice for sure uh, what were some of the things that they were i mean if you can get into it what were some of the things that they were doing on the ipo that uh had you not feeling uh you know like it was above board well, it was, uh, to be fair, it was before the IPO. We were getting ready to go public. And we had acquired a number of different companies. And, you know, I'm not a lawyer. Uh, but what I what I know is that if you're a privately held company, you can basically do whatever you want. Um, and if you're a publicly held company, you can do whatever you want, but you have to disclose it. And what happened is we had acquired a West Coast firm and one of the principles of the West Coast firm was basically doing business with related parties. So it would be like you have you having an intellectual mistress and saying, "All right, I'm going to have Puritech do all the work, and I'm going to uh, and and uh, I'm going to run up a bill of two or three million dollars with Puritech." Well, if you disclose that as a publicly held company, you're fine, but you can't go public and use that as part of your revenue when you, Brian, control, you know, both the customer and the supplier. And, and, that wasn't, and that wasn't disclosed. And as we're getting ready to go public, I'm like, look, guys, I'm too pretty to go to jail. And this is not cool. Um, and they thought that I was, quote, unquote, being an altar boy. Um, you know, ultimately, I don't know that that was really the result of the unraveling. Uh, there was a whole dot-com implosion. But I do think that the absence of the values that we're speaking about in this podcast, the absence of drawing an ethical line. Frankly, a lot of people got drunk on the stock price and on their wealth and uh, made decisions, in my opinion, that they might not have made if it were not so intoxicated, if they weren't so intoxicated by the money. Well, it's it's just this, you said the eight to ten year cycle. It just happens over and over. You know this whole crypto thing with Sam Bankman Fried and you know the whole FTX. I mean, that's just literally twenty years later, the exact same thing happening all over again. Yeah, and and you know whether it's Enron or or uh, Elizabeth Holmes or FTX, you're telling me there's nobody in the room that has the moral courage to say, "Excuse me, wait a second, you know. So I read today somebody lost two million dollars, their life savings on FTX. Is there nobody in the room who's going to stand up and say, "Stop, this is wrong"? Um, I, I, I don't know. That's that that group think is is scary. Um, yeah. Now I'm not I'm not saying that you know everybody's got to be a whistleblower, but where, where do you draw the line? 
you know, where do you say now? Nah, this is not this is not right. Yeah, I was having a conversation with a friend of mine uh, over cocktails the other night, uh, and uh, we were talking about uh, why did Google remove the words uh, "don't do evil" from their manifesto? Or uh, I think that's what. Yeah, don't we, we don't do evil or something like that. They removed that in 2019 or 2020. Uh, forget who's their current CEO, but whoever whoever is their current CEO removed it. And uh, my theory was that, you know, because they're such a large company, they find themselves in situations over and over again where, you know, no matter what decision they make, they're, you know, in cert certain specific situations, no matter which decision they make, there's like some element of, you know, potential wrongdoing or evil like for instance you know government comes in and uh, says like hey we need access to all your data and uh so like what do you do in that situation either you know you comply because they're the government and you know they're they're supposed to have everyone's best interest but then who knows what's actually happening and are there malicious people in you know inside of that department that's dealing with the data in a wrong way uh or um or they say no and then you know they protect the users data but then you know they're potentially uh you know hurting their country that way so uh it, it's just kind of a theory but that that's i think why they probably took that out because uh they have you know at, at that scale a company that size and at that scale with that much power and data it's kind of like inherent that somewhere you're gonna somebody's gonna be doing something uh, but maybe maybe it's maybe it's it should have stayed in because it should be a reminder to uh, to everybody to make the right decisions. But it just it was a curious thing to take that out to me. Well, these are, you know, if they were easy decisions, um, we wouldn't be talking about them and they wouldn't be hard. You know, I'm reminded of of talking to a woman who um, was in the philanthropic space and we were talking about child labor. And, you know, it might be our perspective that. Uh, it's outrageous to have a 10 or 12 year old child working on an assembly line. But in certain Asian countries, if that child is providing for their family and that is the quote unquote norm for their culture, then should we impose our values there? And, you know, it really gets dicey. I was just having a conversation on the philanthropic front with a food bank. And I don't know if it was a federal grant. I think it was a federal grant to a food bank. And they said that you get this grant, but you can't have like, let's say more than 10% of the food you serve to the poor consist of flour and sugar. Um, mm. So Tasty Cake wants to deliver a couple truckloads of Tasty Cakes for you know shut-ins and seniors and, and the hungry. And this one nonprofit can't accept it because of the, the conditions of that grant. Well, I don't know, man. You know, in in my world, if a kid's hungry or a senior's hungry, tasty cake's better than nothing. So yeah, but I, I would I, I I would agree with that. I mean, I think that's a good a good thing. I mean, we're debating you know we're debating uh, conditions here, but I think that's a good rule to have. You know, not it's, to it's well intentioned. Okay, um, and for that matter, you know, um, it might be of interest to your your viewers to know that. Every company I've started has had the same mission statement. And the mission statement is to be the kind of company that we would like our friends, family, and children to work, right? Because what kind of company do you want your children to work at? You want them to work presumably as a, at a profitable company. You want them to work at an ethical company. Uh, you want them to work at a company that uh, has some 
concern about their community, right? So whether it's online advertising or a car wash or uh, anything else, you know, it's aspirational. I don't know that all of us in any of those companies lived up to that every single day, but it's worth trying. Yeah, I agree. Um, that's an awesome mission statement, by the way. I really, uh, I really like that one. And uh, and that that's what was weird to me because I think you know the whole Google thing. When I analyzed that, it was uh, curious to me why they would take it out. You know, they you know I think one argument could be all right, they're so big they can't be perfect, so they can't ever live up to it. But yeah. on the other hand, why why not try? And uh, so that was interesting. Uh, but there's a good segue there. You brought up the car wash. Uh, you know, I was checking out some of the stuff that you're doing on LinkedIn. You've got the golf or had the golf club a while back. You've got the uh the car wash business. You talked about a new business you're building, uh, you know, installing swimming pools, cocktail pools, I think you called it. Manufacturing uh, swimming pools, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'd love to hear more. You know, you've got a background in tech, obviously, uh, which is why you're on the show, but would love to hear more about what you're doing in, in the uh, the tactile space as well. So it, it seems that I make all my money in tech and I lose it all in other businesses. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, and there's there's some amount of humor in that and some amount of truth. Um, the, uh, you know, I, I think coming out of the IPO, uh, I like to say the wealth fairy visited me. And when that happened, I was getting a lot of business plans to be an angel investor. And I was reading the business plans and I didn't understand what they were doing. Uh, and this was really peak of the frenzy in 1999, uh, late 1999. And so I said, I want to like, you know, reinvent myself and ended up going into philanthropy and we raised then $600 million for charity. Today, it's about $4 billion. The company that we started was called Giving Capital. And I also oh, did, wow. real, I, I did real estate development in New Jersey, Florida, Costa Rica, and I built a hotel in Canada, um, in Quebec, which was voted the number one hotel in the world for quality and value by uh, Expedia. And it was a, uh, a luxury condominium, uh, and, and it also bought the golf course at Stone Harbor. Um, and, you know, I did think, I, I guess uh, I had a lack of humility, and I said, my entrepreneurial instincts are transferable. Um, and some of them were, uh, but not all of them. And there's a lot to be said for experience. So in the case of this hotel, which was absolutely beautiful, um, you know, we could never get occupancy up on an annual basis more than about 51% because the resort was seasonal. Um, and we only had 70 rooms. So it was boutique. And, you know, it just couldn't work uh, unless I moved in and was the hotel manager because you can't amortize um, a maid uh, and, a, and a general manager and uh, uh, all of the resources that are needed when you when you only amortize them all over 70 rooms. But I was romantic about it. I thought, you know, my kids are going to work there one day. I love Montreal, Quebec. I still do. Um, so it didn't work. I ran it for five years, um, made five million dollars on the original uh, sale of the condos and then gave it all back, running it over five years. Um, and, and it didn't work out. And I actually had a heart attack uh, at, at one point. Uh, in fact, it was September 11th of 2011. Uh, it was just too stressful for me. It was. You had a heart attack doing that I, project? 
I had a heart attack over the stress of this particular situation. Wow. Um, and, uh, you know, thankfully I was treated well and I haven't had any issues since, but it was extremely stressful. Um, and similarly, you know, I had, uh, I bought Stone Harbor Golf Club, which, and I had, you know, if I had the best timing in the world at, with the dot-com craze getting out in 1999, I had the worst timing uh, for Stone Harbor Golf Club because we bought that in 2007, 2008, right when the economic clouds were, were gathering again. And so I bought it at the peak um, and then the economy fell apart. And it wasn't until just the last few years that housing came back. My plan was to build 400 homes around Stone Harbor Golf Club uh, with a builder and make it a Florida-like or Arizona-like community at the shore. None of that happened because my timing was off. And, uh, you know, frankly, I also had a partner in the Stone Harbor Golf Club who uh, we didn't see eye to eye. And, you know, I now work with uh, a son who's 28 years old. And if he were on your show, he would tell you that, you know, one of my favorite sayings is there's business risk and there's partner risk. And um, partner risk is, is much more difficult to manage than business risk. Um, I've experienced it myself. Um, I've seen it in other companies. And so, you know, if you, you know, if you, if you miss revenue for a quarter, uh, if you, if you have, you know, cost uh, control issues, you can, you can deal with a lot of that. When you have a, a partner wander off the reservation, that's, that's a whole nother kind of problem. And so, um, you know, I'm, I'm very, very careful about who I work with uh, now. And Frank, I have the luxury of, uh, as I did before, but I just wasn't quite as picky as who I want to work with. So, so is uh, it uh, tech companies from here on out for you? <laughs> uh, I I think so. You know, I don't know that, I don't know how many more I have in me. Uh, I'm 62, so I may not be in the fourth quarter, but, uh, you know, I'm probably midway through the third quarter. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, um, you know, I'm doing this cocktail pool thing, which is precast concrete pools. I'm doing that with my brother. He's got 40 years, 40 years experience building pools. So there I've got, you know, the vertical expertise that I didn't have in the hotel. And, and I have a partner that is absolutely trustworthy. So that checks two boxes. But well, it, uh, it's amazing. Uh, while we're on that topic, uh, I told you I just did the episode with Mike Krupit and his uh, the theme for that was his eight lessons learned from eight startups. We got to five in the uh, hour and 20 minutes or whatever. So uh, we didn't get to all, all eight. We'll tease the other three for later. But uh I think lesson three or four was don't try to do a business that you're not an expert in. So he already did, you know, he came from the tech background, did a bunch of tech companies and then decided to try to start a uh, prepared foods delivery company and had the same exact story that you just had where it's, you know, uh, you know, coming from the tech space, understanding that and, you know, it's best to leverage, you know, your network, your experience, your lessons learned, your, uh, you know, the the team that you build up around you coming from, you know, going from one company to the next. And, uh, you know, you build uh, like uh, inertia. It's unbelievable. The, the, the difference between staying in your lane and, and, you know, because your, your Rolodex is full of contacts that you built for years. Um, and, you know, if I could sell t-shirts that say, you know, stay in your lane, do not, do not make the mistake that I, I made. Um, 
I, I would do so. Um, you know, I get celebrated quite a bit as this successful entrepreneur. And, you know, that's that's nice. It's flattering. Uh, but I think, you know, the lessons, the, the positive lessons that I put out there are, you know, be ethical and do the right thing, but also learn from my mistakes. And, you know, when I started to build a hotel or buy a golf course, the fact of the matter is I was arrogant. I don't, I didn't think I was arrogant then. Okay. But looking back, I'm like, so what possessed you to think that, you know, you had enough knowledge to do this? Um, and, you know, it, it bit me uh, in the hindquarters. Uh, so for those of you that are working hard and are soon to have a liquidity event and you have beer muscles and, you know, you want to go open a prepared food business or golf course or build a hotel in the mountains of Quebec or, or whatever, um, you know, start small, uh, learn a little bit. Don't, don't go uh, head first in like I did. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I've heard that same thing. Uh, tech entrepreneurs starting restaurants for some reason. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I have to admit, I love the intellectual process of, of creating things. And, you know, it can be, you know, a precast pool uh, that gets dropped in because it's so novel, you know, nobody's ever done it before. Um, and, and I love greenfield opportunities. You know, when, when we did politics online, you know, there was no such thing as a political ad network. There was a, a gardening ad network, an auto ad network. There was a, um, a gay ad network, a women's ad network. Like there's billions spent on politics and nobody's doing that. So I like these, you know, open field opportunities where there's not a lot of competition. Uh, but yeah, stick, stick to the knitting. Yeah. I love it. Uh, well, I think we're, uh, I think we're getting to a good wrapping point here. Is there anything else uh, you want to touch on anything you want to plug uh, anything we didn't touch on that you uh, hoped we well, would have? You know, I think first of all, we should say thank you to the troops serving overseas that are, you know, dialed in to watch this. Um, and uh, uh Thank you for for inviting me on. I hope I shared something that's helped somebody out there uh, get a little bit forward in their career, save them a little bit of heartache. Um, um, uh, I've shared my favorite book, which is um, The Five Dysfunctions of a Team. And uh, I think we covered a pretty good part of the landscape here spend most of my time in marco island now and um how'd you make out with the this the hurricane great dodge the bullet again oh good uh, and uh, you know i guess looking back after 30 35 years of doing this um i see the the, the energy of my son who's 28 and other young entrepreneurs and um I think I have a different role to play now. You asked me earlier, you know, are there more tech plays? I prefer an advisory role, um, you know, not necessarily hands-on every day. Um, and and the energy and the and just the tools that like my son uses and is fluent in, uh, I'm, I'm not fluent in. So I, I do feel as much as it pains me to admit this, uh, I do feel that I'm aging out of the uh player coach into more of the coach uh mentality cool. yeah to, i gotta gotta catch up with your son it's been a while since i talked to him too yeah it, it happened very quickly 
<laughs> time flies well uh rich thanks for coming on this was awesome uh, i think there was a lot of great nuggets from this episode so i'm excited to get it out there and i'll let you know as soon as it's up all right good luck and thank you again